Welcome to the Science Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Grabbing and holding people's attention as a creator is more important than ever. For many creators, this means creating infotainment for their audience, a piece of art that not only delivers on the fun, but the knowledge gained. For our guest today, his mission was just to entertain. The info came from a personal passion to be scientifically accurate, and people caught on. Today we're joined by Andy Weir, author of The Martian and Artemis, who's giving us some insight on his brand of infotainment, how he went about creating these books, and the value in lifelong learning. Andy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. I'm excited to dive in and pick your brain a little bit on on the intricacies of why you went this route with your novels and um, you know some of the some of the overarching I guess mission statements that you're trying to get across uh, with your art. Oh wow! Um, Makes me sound like I kind of like had a purpose or a goal or something. Right. <laughs> well, you know that's we'd like to hope so. That was always when I was in um, in English class, we would always be dissecting novels, and the teacher would always ask, "Why do you think the the author made the curtains red in this scene?" And it's like, <laughs> well, you know, honestly, they probably just picked a color. Like sometimes, yeah. sometimes there isn't a choice, but there's got to be some intentionality to some of the stuff. Well, See, in The Martian, Mars represents the gold standard of the 1920s, and uh, Venkat <laughs> Kapoor represents uh, FDR's... Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, yeah, suddenly diving into really complex politics there. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> cool. All right, so let's just get right into it. So I'm I'm reading through Artemis right now. Uh, I, I'm really enjoying it. I've also enjoyed uh, oh, the, the Martian, you know, really, really quality science accurate science fiction, which brings us to this idea of infotainment. And, I, you know, I think that a lot of people are really digging into that, especially with the rise of a lot of Netflix original documentaries and things where you you dig in, you enjoy a quality piece of art, but then at the same time, you feel like you gain some knowledge out of it. Uh, so was that part of the goal when you sat down to write these novels is to deliver a, a product that not only people could consume on an entertainment value, but could also get some knowledge out of the experience? Um, well, uh, not, not, not to ruin the theme of the episode, but no, not really. Um, my, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, okay. Uh, and the podcast is done. So thanks so much for done. coming right, on. Thank right. you. Thanks. <laughs> no, no. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't setting out to educate, uh, people specifically. It wasn't my goal to say like, okay, I want someone to read this book. And then when they're done, I want them to know all about Mars or, or the moon. Um, really, it's just the sort of storytelling I do is, you know, I'm, I'm a science dork, so I like to tell science-related plots and stories. And it is that it then becomes necessary to educate the reader uh, on, the, on the science enough to understand the scientific problems that the protagonists are facing. And so it, does, it is absolutely infotainment in, in that I, I am... Uh, forced to educate the reader on this stuff, but that's an effect of the story I'm writing, not the reason why I'm writing the story. Sure. You know what I mean? It's it's a subtle difference, but I, I didn't set out to make an educational thing. I just wanted to write a story that I would like, and I wanted to make sure the reader could understand all the beats that are happening. And that presents, I think, a, a new problem is the fact that you 
wanted it to be like that just because you were passionate about it meant trying to find the perfect balance of being accurate and at the same time it being a consumable piece of media for an audience that may not know much about the subject in general. Yeah, that was a constant balancing act. Uh, that was one of the hardest parts about uh, The Martian. Artemis was a little easier because it's less intensely based on science. Um, I mean, it is all the science is accurate, but it's more of a story about, you know, personal interactions and and um, uh, uh, the main character, Jazz, Jasmine, um, kind of learning to ex learning to be better at interacting with people. And I tried to put some character depth in there and stuff. <clears throat> but The Martian is really heavy science, right? And so I would do these deep dives to work out all the science and stuff, which I love, by the way. Uh, and research is one of the writer's best friends in terms of finding a legitimate excuse to procrastinate because <laughs> you can uh, you can spend all day researching. And you're like, no, I'm working on my novel. And it's like, okay. Yeah, right. So, you know, I started by saying, hmm, orbital trajectories to Mars. And five hours later, I'm reading the Wikipedia page for giraffe mating calls. And I'm like, no, nah, this is research somehow, <laughs> you know. But yeah, but um, it turns out that, you know, I, I would I did a lot more research for like the Martian, for instance, than ever showed up in the book. Also for Artemis, too, um, just the design of the city. And so it's a constant balance of just figuring out, OK, I need to tell the reader enough that the plot is relevant, like that they understand what's going on and why this relates to the plot. But no more. I don't I. It, just because no matter how cool something is, if I'm like, oh, this is so cool, it's not relevant to the plot, but I really want to tell the reader, I have to resist the urge to tell them that because I don't want the story to read like uh, like an encyclopedia entry, right? I, I, it's got to be it's got to be entertaining. So if I do find something that's really really awesome scientifically, I either have to just let it go or work it into the plot. Right, right, yeah. You you want to make sure that. Everything feels intentional, but at the same time, I mean, yeah, you don't want to sacrifice the scientific accuracy just to make it accessible for a reader. Right. Well, also, the, the, the really hard part is, you know, hey, it took me a long time to write this. It should take you a long time to read it. <laughs> you know? Right, like, right. <laughs> I did a lot of work on this. and I worked a bunch of stuff out and I want to brag to you, the reader, about it. And I, I, you have to resist that impulse. And I, that brings me to my next point, which is that. You know, as a reader, um, or I guess like when you were writing these novels and thinking about your target audience, um, were you expecting people to be as receptive to this science, accurate science fiction uh, as, you know, like when you were writing it? Did you think, wow, I could really see this catching on? I mean, did you see people craving that kind of content? Did you see other forms of media producing this level of infotainment that was this accurate but also this – fictional uh or or was that something almost like a gap that you were like i'm gonna try to fill this no uh i had no idea it would have any mainstream appeal at the time i wrote the martian it was uh just i it was a labor of love i was writing it a chapter at a time and posting it to my own self-managed um creative writing website and at the time i had about three thousand regular readers i'm basing that on the size of my mailing list you know and um, i'd accumulated them over 10 years of writing short fiction and making comics and stuff like that right <clears throat> and my my short fiction my comics all that stuff it's always very very scientifical right and so the readership that i'd accumulated my teeny teeny weeny little audience was all hardcore science dorks 
So I was writing The Martian for them. You know, I, I was writing The Martian for this, you know, 1% of 1% of 1% of the population who not only want a scientifically accurate story, but also want to see the math, right? And so I, I honestly had no idea it would have any mainstream appeal. I, I am still shocked that people love this book, which is basically a series of algebra problems. I, <laughs> I still don't have any idea what happened there. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm obviously I'm really happy about it. It's made my life awesome. But um, yeah, no, I definitely <laughs> wasn't. I had no idea it would have any purchase in the mainstream audience. And that's so interesting that an audience still craved that. I mean, you were writing it first for some for a group of people that knew the ins and outs of what you were writing and were obsessed with the intricacies, but then you still found success in a in a in a more mainstream, uh, less scientifically uh, informed audience. Um, well, what I what I what I discovered was that, and, and you know, this was not in any way deliberate. It just kind of worked out that way. What I discovered was, well, first off, people really like the main character. They like Mark Watney. They're really rooted for him. I guess if if you've got the audience like rooting for your main character and loving him, then they'll put up with anything in the book as long as they get to see him do stuff. And then um, that's number one. And number two, um, lots of people read The Martian who have absolutely zero interest in the science. And what I learned from them, from their from their reviews and feedback and stuff was they just kind of skimmed over the science part. They're like, you know, okay, here's like two paragraphs explaining the detailed science behind this. They're like, yeah, no, nah, I, I, don't, I don't care about that. Skim, skim, skim. Okay, back to the plot. <laughs> and it's really right. interesting. And I realized that that is an incredible feat that I wish I knew how to do on purpose where the reader intrinsically trusts you, the, the author intrinsically trusts you so much that they don't need to see you prove it. Like their suspension of disbelief is completely rock solid. They have absolutely no problems with the story. They don't need to see the science laid out. They don't need the explanation. And they're willing to skip over that exposition to move forward with the plot. And, and, and they're totally happy with it. That is like a very rare thing to accomplish in a book to have the reader. Cause when you're reading a book, there's always some little part of your brain that's reminding you, you know, this is a book, you know, this is like some man or woman at their, you know, at their, you know, word processor writing this, this isn't really happening. And, you know, there's this little part of you that's looking for proof of that because there's that little part of you that's a jerk, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. And that, that loves to judge. That loves to judge and loves to find the flaws and loves to find anything it doesn't do. And to, to get to that point with a reader where they just, where that little part of them is shut off and they're just going with the story, that is, uh, that is what every author wants. That's what every author wants and needs. And I bungled into it in The Martian. And uh, I'm really happy that happened. But I don't know uh, how to do it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a, a beautiful mistake and accident. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love that. So let's see, what was the next thing I wanted to ask? Um, Why are there braille instructions on drive through ATMs? Yes. Okay. That is that is a great question that I think everyone needs an answer to. Well, it's actually pretty simple. They make the ATMs at a different location and they don't know where they're going to be installed. And it's easier to put on a $3 plate that has braille on it on all of them rather than keep track of which ones will be at drive throughs so that, you you know, to save like, you know, three, but it would cost more to pay attention to where it's going to go than it does to just put Braille on all of them. Wow. 
You learn something new every day. Yeah, now I never have to ask myself that question ever again. Thank you, Andy Weir. Do you want to know the deal with airline food? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Let's dig in. Let's dig into everyone's dig in. classic stand-up routine. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, airline food is interesting because that came up in Artemis. Um, uh, the problem, one of the main problems with airline food is when, uh, when atmospheric pressure goes down, uh, your taste buds, your taste receptors get less sensitive. It's just the, 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 the chemistry that makes your taste buds work. Um, so you, uh, you become less able to taste it. Everything tastes more bland. And when you're in a flight, uh, they have the cabin pressure such that it's like being at about 10,000 feet altitude. So everything does taste more bland. And so that's the deal with airline food. That's, that's the deal. That's wow. the deal. So call Jerry Seinfeld <laughs> and tell him I have an answer for him. <laughs> and now no one can ever use that joke ever again. Hopefully. Wow. Hopefully. It, 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 yeah. It, I, I think in another sense, it's just a dated one. It needs to be yeah. retired. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, that. you probably have interview questions for me. <laughs> you know, yeah, I do. But let's let's flip it. Let's keep – no, I'm, I'm kidding. So, <laughs> so I, I really appreciate, you know, in, in your novels that even – when people are reading them and don't particularly care about the science, I think they still are attracted to the novel and to the the art because it has a sense of realism to it. And you know that even if you're reading it, it's like, well, okay, I'm just going to trust that this guy's delivering tr accurate science for my novel that, um, that you know, you're, you're getting something educational out of it in a way that doesn't feel educational. And I think that um, is really telling of... The idea of lifelong learning. Um, I think a lot of times people, when they graduate college, once they're out of school, they get this idea that they don't, you know, they're done with traditional lessons, that they don't need to take a class for anything anymore. And, and mm. it's just, it's kind of, it's kind of over. You've, you've maybe reached your, your peak, but at the same time, there's so many interesting ways to learn that can push the idea of lifelong learning and your novel is definitely one of them so i don't know i, oh, I know you. you i know you definitely had to learn a lot um to make the science accurate so i mean what kind of lifelong learning did you do when you were writing these novels why do you think it's important and uh how do you think that's relating in your books well it's interesting i haven't thought of the concept of lifelong learning in the way that you're you're you know in the way that you're talking about it before but my gut reaction is that you don't have a choice but to do lifelong learning and you just don't know necessarily that you're doing lifelong learning. Okay. You graduate from college, you enter your, your chosen career and then, you know, on the job, you learn a lot. That's why someone right. who's been doing a thing, whatever, whatever the profession is, someone who's been doing it for 10 years is worth a lot more about your, or is, is a lot better at it than someone who's just entering the job. So you're always learning. Um, it, it may not be in a traditional classroom sense, but you're always learning. And so you, you don't really have a choice. As for me, my, you know, lifelong learning is based on, you know, space is my passion. It's my hobby. It's my interest. And it's really easy to learn new things about something that is your passion. If you're a gearhead, if you're, you know, like <clears throat> really into cars, then yeah, you can tell me the, you know, the, you know, you, you can, I can show you a picture of a car and you can tell me the year, make and model. And, oh, interesting thing about that car is they initially planned to release it in 1952, but it got delayed because of that, you know, that's, if you're passionate about something, it's extremely easy to learn about it. And for me, I'm passionate about space and space travel and, you know, that sort of thing. So 
for me, the research was is the most fun part of my books. It's that pesky plot characters and writing that is, you know, that I have to do begrudgingly. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think what really helped your novels succeed was that you were willing to consult experts on the topic and get their opinions on, hey, is this accurate? You know, you, you didn't just uh, – you didn't like maybe your ego get to your head and be like, I, I know what I'm doing here, right? Is that idea of oh, of yeah. accepting collaboration and accepting mentorship? Most of my, I mean, I didn't, I didn't uh, really consult. So on The Martian, I didn't know anybody in aerospace. I was on my own, right? And, and so all of my, uh, all of my research was just started with Google. And now what's interesting is, you know, then fast forward in time to now I'm working on Artemis and I also want scientific accuracy. Um, now I have all these contacts. There are people that I can call at right. NASA and ask questions and, and scientists. And like I, I know Neil deGrasse Tyson. I got, you know, there's lots of people that I can talk to, but I still use Google because it's faster and it doesn't inconvenience anyone. <laughs> right. And so, um, but yes, I, I, I mean, I always double check my stuff. For The Martian, it was particularly good because since I was posting it a chapter at a time to my website, I had 3,000 fact checkers. You know, when I post a chapter, uh, these these my readers were hardcore nerds and they're they're very knowledgeable in their fields. And so, if if I got some aspect of science or math wrong, they would tell me, and then I go back and fix it. I unfortunately didn't have that luxury of crowdsourced fact checking with Artemis because it was a traditional book deal. So. You know, when a publisher gives you a big pile of money to write a book, they don't want you to post it online for free. And um, so I just had to be really, really careful. I, I When I was doing my research, I, I just made sure that I was at websites that hold some legitimacy, not just like Bob's website about this thing. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm going to tell you all about the scientific principle and I'm going to tell you why the aliens are watching, you know. Right, um, exactly. And then also uh, just uh, I just I had to be much more careful with the research. But, you know, I, and I did talk to a few subject matter experts here and there, but not 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 as many as people think. Uh, it's mostly just me alone doing Google. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I but I, I still think that the power of collaboration is is so strong for something like this. And I think it's really representative of the space that. Hot pun intended, right? The the space mm. that you're writing about, hey, hey, hey. Um, right? <laughs> uh, but but yeah, that the fact that you are writing novels about space and that now you're seeing NASA right now with a lot of government and private partnerships coming together and doing a lot more collaboration um, to get uh, more rockets into space, more satellites into space, and continue to advance um, aerospace technology. It's it's really interesting to see. You uh, sort of promote that idea of collaboration is is king um, for something like a book. Yeah. Um, well, you, you know, uh, so the internet. Like, remember, most of the websites I would land on after googling for something I want were a you know a passion project that somebody wrote. Like, I learned all about. Uh, I learned the details of how to do complex orbital dynamics from a website that a guy had posted. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not. And so it is still very much collaboration. It's just an indirect collaboration where I'm not, I, I don't have a back and forth conversation with the guy, but someone who knows what they're doing posted all this information. And then somebody who wanted to learn from that guy, me, went and found it. So it's, it's still collaboration. It's just less, you know, chatting over coffee and more, I am a consumer of this guy's passion project. 
Yeah, definitely. So looking a little bit into the future uh, of infotainment, do you see more of a mainstream audience continuing to um, engage with and consume media that is very accurate in the kinds of stories that it's telling, you know, whether it's uh, some sort of documentary, historical, uh, whether it's science related? Do you do you see the mainstream audience that consumes this kind of media uh, really, really engaged and really excited about this kind of um, this kind of art form, and why do you think that is? Well, I think it's a demographic, right? It's not just like oh, the whole world is now into this and the whole world is into that. Sure. There's just always a there's always a percentage of people that are like, hey, you know, I want I want I, I want to be entertained, but I want to be entertained, and I also kind of want to learn a little bit about something. And for, there's always going to be that demographic. Now, do I feel that that's like taking over or growing? I, I honestly don't know. I'm not. I'm, I'm not an expert at the you know kind of market segments on that. Um, sure. But I can tell you that uh, I I am one of those people. I do like. Um, I love. I love learning. You know what's interesting? Uh, it just it, this is like exactly what you kind of uh, what you're talking about here is the infotainment. A lot of Japanese animation. Uh, I, I am an anime dork uh, to a certain extent. Um, hey, not, yes, not, not hardcore, but a lot of Japanese animation. It starts with some like obscure profession, and a large portion of the season is just kind of telling you about what these people do. So it's like you know, I've seen an a an anime that's all about you know artistic calligraphers, and another one that's all about yeah, um, uh, um, fermenting. You know the you know the process of fermenting alcohol and 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 there are characters and stories and stuff all about it that surround it, but it's also very 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 educational. <laughs> yeah, and and I think that is the exciting part is that audiences engage with that kind of content without necessarily feeling like they're having some some lesson or some. Yeah. Uh, some classroom setting shoved down their throats because because I I think people sort of get over that they don't want to I mean some some people do I know I have sat down and watched tutorial videos on things because I am actively wanting to learn something new but when people are consuming art or media um, it, that might not be at the forefront of their mind uh, hey I'm gonna sit down and watch this show or right. read this book because I can't wait to be taught about. Uh, you know, like orbital systems, but at at the end of the day, right. they're willing to learn about it because the uh, the media is still engaging. Yeah, and I should be clear. Um, I am never like my goal in writing any given story. My goal is only to entertain the reader. Anything else is secondary. I'm not there. I'm not saying like, hmm, I want to educate people. No, it's always right. And, and I I never have a political point, and I never have a there's never a moral, <laughs> you know, there's never, there, there are no deeper meanings. It's always just like, I want people to read the book and have fun. And then when they're done and they put the book down, I just want them to say like, oh, that was neat. And, and right. then move on with like, I, I just, uh, I, I, I am a, one of those authors whose sole interest is entertainment. I have no, no other objective. However, my particular means of entertaining is science-based and so i end up having to educate the reader enough to understand the science that causes the plot events right exactly yeah at the end of the day it stems from a personal passion that then translates into the sole mission which is entertaining yep 
that, 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 that's, that's my approach anyway. We'll, we'll see if it works in the long term. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I mean, it's, it, it seems to be paying off well. Thank uh, you. So, so yeah, congrats, congrats on that. So, so yeah, so I know that there's also a classroom edition of the Martian that has made its way into the education space and is used in classrooms. And I'm sure that is honestly the perfect combination of what we've been talking about, which is infotainment. Uh, people are people are getting info, people are getting entertainment out of it. So can you tell me a little bit more about how that's made its way into the education sphere and um, what educators are gaining from bringing something like that into the classroom? Yeah, well, um, after The Martian came out and it started doing really well, I, I started getting emails from teachers saying like, hey, um, I would love to use The Martian as an educational tool, uh, but it's got a lot of profanity in it, <laughs> right? <laughs> which, which it does. It has like a lot of swearing, hardcore swearing. And and then some of what I learned was some teachers were just, um, you know, high school teachers and stuff. They get you know, they they clear it with the faculty, and then and and then they assign it, and just the Martian in its normal form. Uh, and you know, there'd be some pushback from parents every now and then, but for the most part, they liked using it as education. But then I got so many teachers saying, "Man, I really want to use this book in my classroom," but I teach like junior high school kids. You know, I can't. I get. It's not like they haven't heard these words, but parents don't like it when they bring home a book full of them, right? And, right, right. And so uh, I, I pushed the publisher on it, and the publisher agreed, and so we made a classroom-friendly edition. And um, all it is is just it's the it's a, I I personally made the changes. It's just all the swear words are um, softened up to be like PG, you know. It's very nice. Like it's like oh, I'm pretty much screwed. Is the first line of the book. I mean, you know. Right. In, in, instead of the more profane, yes. realistic version. Right. right. And so now it is suitable for classrooms. And we found that a lot of teachers love to use it. Um, people have made study guides for it. And the, the thing is, teachers are always, you know, the biggest challenge for a teacher is, of course, to get the kids engaged uh, in the educational process. But now with this, I mean, like I said, it is a series of algebra problems. They're like, OK, read chapter two of The Martian and then we're going to we're going to try to or read up to this page, you know, read, read these eight pages, you know, we're going to work forward, read these eight pages and then stop here. And then we're going to try to work out a solution. How, how is Mark going to survive this? Well, here's what we know and here's what we have to solve. So who can tell me, you know, what 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 kind of math problem you should use to to resolve this problem? And, and so on. And um, I think the. Um, the classroom edition also has like kind of study questions and like uh, educational guide stuff at the at the end too, which I didn't write, so I don't I don't I don't know it that well. But um, but you know after the book there's there's more stuff, and so that's been really cool, uh, and it was really unintentional, and I'm really happy about that. I mean uh, to to have something used for education. Um, it's funny is that the Martian came out long enough ago now. I mean, I originally posted it in 2012 and then like the book came out in 2014. So, you know, we're talking, it's been like five, six years. And um, so now I'm, <laughs> I'm, you know, seeing people in my, when I'm doing an autograph line, I'll see a people person who's like, Hey, I'm in my, um, you know, first year of college and I'm pursuing an aerospace degree because I read your book when I was like 14. And I'm like, Wow. <laughs> yeah, that must feel good. I mean, e even if it wasn't even if it wasn't your intention to start off with, the fact that you've produced a piece of art that really 
does exemplify that perfect intersection of learning something, being inspired by something, but then at the end of the day, just being entertained. It's, uh, it, it, I, I think intrinsically, uh -huh. maybe to you, you know, like I, I know your sole goal is just to entertain, but I think a lot of people might say it even holds more value because of the fact that people are gaining um, inspiration and people are gaining knowledge from it as well as entertainment. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I, that, that is just this really pleasant, unexpected side effect and it really makes me feel happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, okay. So you know what? I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast and giving us your takes on the power of infotainment and how you crafted that within The Martian and Artemis. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it it's definitely some great context as to as to why the books are succeeding. Um, because at the end of the day, you made sure that the entertainment was at the forefront, so no one felt like they were being um, force fed knowledge. Or lecture. Right. Yeah. But but then beyond that, they still got that knowledge, and now people are people are feeling inspired enough to pursue a career in in aerospace engineering, like you said, because of. Uh, because of reading your book. So that's that's fantastic stuff. Oh, thank you. So before we head out, I do have a fun game for you here. We're going to play just a quick game of verses. And okay. I know you are king of the geekdom and I <laughs> I I I'd, I'd say I'm I may be a prince, you know, I'm not I'm not quite up there. I haven't I haven't I, dug in I, as I, much. I, I'm not king of geekdom. Okay, all right. <laughs> <Let's>, <laughs> I might be some sort of lower nobleman. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> you know? Then I'll 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 just be some some sort of I don't know. I I I can't remember. Also mi a mi yeah, and also nobleman. <laughs> I can't remember medieval uh, medieval politics right now. So we'll. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm an earl. Yeah, kingdom. right. Exactly. Exactly. So you, we're gonna do a quick little verses. I'm just gonna pitch some some names at you. Fictional. Sci-fi, fictional, uh, geekdom characters, and you gotta tell me sure, who you're sure. gonna, you gotta tell me who you think would win in a fight, whether physical, intellectual, however you think they would battle it out. All right, so we'll start with let's pitch some. I know you're a big Doctor Who fan, so let's pitch two Doctors against each other. We'll do the Ninth Doctor versus the Eleventh Doctor. Who do you think hmm. would win in a in a battle of wits, brawn? Well, that's a tough one to call because they're they're the same person, right? Right, I exactly. Mean, they are literally the same person. Uh, the ninth Doctor was a little darker and a little more vicious, uh, but the eleventh Doctor. I, I'm going to have to go with the eleventh Doctor because he's older. He knows everything the ninth Doctor knows, and he has a couple of hundred years more experience. True, <laughs> that is true. I mean, yeah. At the end of the day, they are literally the exact same person. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so maybe maybe just a few hundred years would give him the edge. I agree. Um, all right, so let's do Picard versus Luke Skywalker. In what sort of conflict? Well, I'm I'm gonna let you choose it. You you choose the conflict because I feel like hand to hand, Luke would probably dice the poor guy in half. But yeah, no, I mean, Luke yeah, would <laughs> I mean, Luke, like if Luke's armed with a you know a lightsaber and Picard is armed with a phaser. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I think I, I, I think Luke, Luke's got the edge there, presuming lightsabers can block phaser fire. Um, yeah, so hand-to-hand, -hand, definitely Luke. I mean, um, anything related to ship-to-ship -to -ship combat, Picard. I would even put Picard as a winner 
in a direct uh, fighter versus fighter combat, like Luke flying an X-wing and Picard fighting the, you know, flying a, a I don't know, like a. a, a um, a federation. Like a small Klingon fighter or whatever? Yeah. No, 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 like a federation of, uh, like the, um, you, you know, one of those little federation fighters that sure. you sometimes see. They're rare, but you see them. And um, I would even put Picard as the winner on that because he got to start doing that um, back in the day. Uh, um, so in, anything related to combat in space or using spaceships, I got to go with Picard. Uh, force be damned, Picard's just got so much experience, you know. True, and, and he's definitely uh, de- definitely more cool, calm, and collected than yeah. Luke, I'd say. And in any intellectual fight, I mean, unless we're talking, uh, you know, unless we're talking, um, you know, Luke Skywalker from The Last Jedi, where he's old and wise and you know super experienced. We're talking Luke, right. Luke from A New Hope, then definitely anything. Anything that's an intellectual conflict, I got to go with Picard. Yeah, he definitely looks like he would kick my butt in a chess game. Yeah. And, uh, uh, however, if we're <laughs> talking straight up melee and Luke doesn't have his lightsaber, that's a little more interesting. Um, but I would still pick Luke because, you know, if it's just unarmed combat, I'd still pick Luke because he can just, you know, use telekinesis to smack Picard against the walls and shit. So, <laughs> <I'd> right. just... <laughs> so I'm going to go with Luke on anything that has to do with hand to hand. Uh, Picard on anything that's intellectual or spaceship based. Nice. That feels like a fair answer. And yeah, I mean, I, telekinesis or force slamming people against the wall is kind of a, kind of a, um, you know, a, a, an advantage. I'd say. Yeah, a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit, just small one. Okay, last one here. We're gonna do some big bads. We're gonna All do right. Thanos from Marvel, okay. who just had his his fun movie. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and then we're gonna do. Doomsday from DC. Doomsday. Wow. Well, I mean, uh, are are we having Thanos with or without the Infinity Gauntlet? Let's let's go without the gems okay. first because those are those are a little OP in my opinion. Yeah, right. So if he's got the Infinity Gauntlet, well, snap. <laughs> See ya. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but boy, straight up, uh I got to go with my man Doomsday. Thanos is tough, but he's not tough enough to beat Superman to death, right? True. <laughs> True. And Doomsday is. <laughs> so Yeah, that that definitely takes some brawn. Yeah, right. So I mean, just in a straight up physical fight. I mean Doomsday has well, the comic version of Doomsday has no intellect. Doomsday is just a, a destruction machine. All it does is fight and kill. Right? But um it, but it is so indestructible that I I just I gotta go with Doomsday. I just uh so basically think about it this way. Doomsday was toe to toe equivalent with Superman. Yeah. Right. So, so, the, so then ask yourself the 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 sub question: Superman versus Thanos. Got to go with Superman. I mean, right. Superman could beat Hulk. And yeah. Thanos, by the way, actively avoids direct conflict with the Hulk. And all the conflict in all the comics, he has, he he has said the Hulk is like the one creature in the universe that he is uncomfortable with uh, getting into a direct conflict with, and. Um, and in every crossover where Superman has to fight the Hulk, Superman wins, although usually just barely. And so there, there's a transitive property. Thanos yeah. is Thanos is on par with the Hulk, but maybe a little weaker. Superman can beat the Hulk, and Doomsday is on par with Superman. Therefore, I conclude Doomsday could kick Thanos' ass. Love it. Math. Math prevails. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, Andy, so much for coming on the podcast again, giving us this great context on your brand of infotainment and uh, why why you think it's so important and why you do it, what motivates you. Uh, really, some some really interesting stuff. So again, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's been it's been really fun. <laughs> And thank you everyone for listening to today's podcast. And if you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin. Till next time.